This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. difficult moments along the way. I'm Josh Poe Phillips and I'm just letting you know that this is a slightly different episode of the podcast this week. We're doing a little best of compilation featuring some of our favourite moments from the last 18 months. So Jim and I will be back again next week with a regular episode of the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. Our handles on social media are at blank pod or if you'd like to sign up to our Patreon, you can. Patreon.com forward slash blank podcast and of course also we have a book out which you can purchase from all good bookshops and online it's called blank why it's fine to falter and fail and how to pick yourself up again and of course we'll see you next week on the blank podcast enough of this tomfoolery um I, I've been reading your book and I love it. It's so good. Oh, um, thanks. Really love it. And um, I know you're very adamant that it's not a memoir, but I, I know yeah. at the beginning you start to sort of peel that away a little bit and, and sort of reveal it. It's part, <laughs> yeah, it, um, part memoir. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I just, I, just, I just think it's, yeah, for someone beneath the age of 50 to write a memoir, I think is arrogant. So I just didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to say that I was doing that. But then stand-up is kind of memoir anyway. Stand-up is just yeah. kind of spoken, exaggerated memoir. So that's, yeah, it's as, it's as much memoir as any stand-up is, I guess. Yeah, it's funny. I remember watching, in uh, this is, again, this like, like, probably in the 90s, This Is Your Life, which was this sort of um, kind of awful program where they used to bring out some sort of B or C list celebrity and then they would they would sort of talk them through their life and all their achievements and then people from their life would come through. And they did it once with um, the snooker player, Stephen Hendry. And I think he was about 21 at the time. And I remember thinking, how can he possibly be a prime candidate for this is your life when he's only 21 years old? And I I, kind of get what you're saying about not being able to... Yeah, I think you have to really have... You really need to have packed in the accomplishments. Like when Malala wrote her memoir i was like okay fair enough <laughs> I done a fair amount. yeah done a fair amount um but for me i was like no nah, no nah. but yeah hopefully hopefully it's not uh hopefully it's entertaining enough no it's brilliant uh, by it's the a- way i've 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 only just started my backup recording just so you know don't worry I, that's fine we got into that conversation so casually and easily i know i'm sorry <laughs> i know we're very we are that's that, i'm afraid that no, is to your way. credit that's our that's our that, <laughs> that's our our way um but yeah the, something that struck me at the beginning of the book and often we start the podcast by talking about um people's childhoods and it the thing that struck me was a thing about you talking about families and there's a bit at the beginning where you're I know you go to the cinema with your mum and um mm. and you're sort of picked on by some some youths um <laughs> some, some it's a youths. pathetic story really. no not yeah. at all no at all but it did, did strike me and, and and the fact that you wrote about um 
how families in the UK often we do try and fly the nest quite quickly. We want to, you know, we don't like hanging out with our families and how that was something that you were used to being in, in Malaysia where your family was quite close knit and you, you spent a lot of time with your family. And I, I was interested in that dynamic. So tell us a bit about how, you know, obviously you were born in Stoke, but then you moved to Malaysia and you spent sort of most of your youth there, didn't you? Yeah. So I was born in Stoke on Trent. My mum is from Stoke and, um, but three weeks after I was born, we flew back to Malaysia and that's where I grew up. Um, my dad's Malaysian, uh, Chinese Malaysian from Borneo, Sabah, which is the North, North, what used to be British North Borneo. Um, and so I, I was there basically until I was 16 and moved to the UK to do A-levels and onwards and uh, stayed here since. So, you know, I'm 32 now. So coming up this year will be my, um, I don't know, my my equivalence mark. I will have lived as yeah. long a life in the UK as in Malaysia, 16, 16, coming up this year. I'm thinking of having like a party with lots of Union Jacks and stuff, make it look really sort of <laughs> UKIP-y. I'm going to have like a really ukip kind of <laughs> party. <laughs> uh, like I'm finally, I'm finally as British as I'm Malaysian. Uh, so yes, but I grew up there until I was 16 and, and I, my, so I didn't have my British family there. It's all just my Malaysian family. My father's one of uh, eight. Okay. So lots of cousins, lots of aunts and uncles. And because of the Chinese uh, culture and tradition, there's just lots of festivals and, you know, there's London Festival, Chinese New Year. Uh, uh, and then the old Malaysia has its own, there, there are the other Malay festivals, there are the Indian festivals, but, but we spent all the Chinese ones together and then Christmas and, and, and so we'd go to each other's houses and there'd be 20 people there all related. And outside of that, I'd, I'd go to the cinema with my cousins, have sleepovers with my cousins. And so like your family was very much also your social life. Um, in a way that I found in the UK, it really isn't. Families are yeah. more more about the nuclear family, they're about your yeah. your direct relatives, and the family seems. And of course, this is a generalization, and there are lots of there are plenty of people for whom this is not true. But in general, um, the, the nuclear family in the UK is sort of a chrysalis. You know, it's mm. where um, you start as a child and you're grown into an independent adult as quickly as possible, and then you're out on your own and you're yeah. you're living your own life. Uh, and so, and so, I tell the story at the start where I was laughed at <laughs> at the cinema by these teens because I was just there with my mother watching a movie, just hanging out with old mum, uh, <laughs> and I hadn't thought of it before as sort of an embarrassing thing uh, to do, uh, but it just goes went to show this difference in culture between between the two. It should, I mean, it shouldn't be really an embarrassing thing to hang out with your. Mom no, at all, but it, it was also very much about like where they were at in life where yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, they and at that age 14 15 you know they're under so much pressure to to show that they are these individual agents yeah and grown up and you know and don't need the families and all this sort of thing it's very true so so i actually i i lived in malaysia when i was younger as well but oh but wow nowhere near as long for about six months when but similar thing i was born and then about a few months later mum and dad were like right we're off to malaysia my dad no way a, yeah, my dad got a job out there working on a, a dam. Um, I say working on. He wasn't. That makes him sound like he was doing construction. He was. He was the accountant. Um, so it's not. Hey, not, not very important. Still an important yeah. job. Yeah, yeah still an accounting all the water. Yeah, accounting all the water going through, making sure. <laughs> exactly. No more yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, where was the dam? It was. Do you know what? I actually had to ask my mum this morning because I, my memory is so bad. It was the 
Uh, Sungai Shining Dam. I don't know if that's, oh, a, big, okay. is that a big dam. Sungai. I don't know if that's a popular dam. I, I, I don't know it. My father was a water engineer, so he'd, he'd be losing his shit right now. But I, <laughs> I'd imagine if I'm they sure. crossed paths. They may have crossed paths at some point. <laughs> they, they, may, they may have done. But were you, were you in West Malaysia? Were you in the peninsula of Malaysia? In Kuala, so Kuala we, Lumpur? Yeah, so we were in, we were in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, Kuala oh, Narang. Yeah. Sorry, no, Kuala Narang. Oh. Oh gosh, I've never heard of these places. Because, uh, yeah, Peninsula Malaysia has all these bits that if you live in Borneo, which I did, you just never heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's so. cool. It's cool. But yeah, your, it's got, your first six months was it? I reckon it was six months, and then we came back, and then we went to Dubai, and then we came another for a year, came back, and then we moved to Spain for three years. So we were sort of around. You're unsettled. Yeah. Around and about quite a lot. Around and about just quite a lot. But, but chasing dams. Yeah, chasing counting dams, numbers. Chasing Chasing those sweet, sweet dams around the world. Uh, but I Don't go chasing England. waterfalls. <laughs> go chasing dams. I think that song was actually about my dad. I think he was the inspiration for TLC. Good old John. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're right about, because also my dad's family are, are Irish. And so he's one of a hundred or he's one of six. That's exaggerated. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a very similar... Yeah, there's real similarity there, isn't there, between Irish yeah. families and um, and not not Chinese families because they're, I mean, Chinese mainland Chinese families are very small, but uh, but Chinese diaspora families and where I was in Malaysia, they were they were also uh, they were Catholic as well. So you know right. that that religion is something that ties these yes. two ends of the earth together. But it does. But that that idea of family ties them as well, I think, and the fact that you would. I'd imagine in Ireland, be really close to your family and you do things together and possibly all live together. And, and yeah, over here, it is so much about in the individual and the individualism and just yeah. like, get your head down, get your grades, fuck off, basically. And there is a lot to that as well. You know, there's a lot of benefit to that. And that comes all out of uh, Christianity and the Renaissance and the sanctity of the individual. And that was very important back when we lived in societies that were, what do you call it? um uh, uh like feudal societies where you, unless you were landed you you were worthless and then christianity came around and and the renaissance and suddenly oh the individual matters and the individual yeah. has rights and that's how we end up at this point here whereas in like china the main philosophical breakthrough was confucianism which is about hierarchy and the greater good and so we end up with you know uh, uh large families and larger sense of uh uh and so the, the sense of individuality is dissipated somewhat throughout your community. Yeah. And so I don't, there's no like correct answers. Each has its each has its merits. Yeah. I think I would. I think I lean more towards the family. I just I think right, it yeah. feels because we we live with my mother-in-law, which um, it's weirdly sort of seen as a bit of a weird thing to do by a lot of people, sort of in the west for some reason and yeah i know there's a lot of yeah. other cultures that you you would oh in asia that's the most normal thing in the world yeah to have the yeah. grandmother living yeah. yeah and so i don't i feel like i'm trying to normalize it essentially that, that's my that's my crusade i'm gonna try and normalize <laughs> the mother-in-law uh, um yeah that, that, that sounds that, like a sitcom yeah it yeah, does. Really does. Like, really yeah does. he was like that sounds that's a show but yeah, in asia it's just normal yeah and i do wonder if that that is a changing trend, I think, probably in the West a little bit because, you know, obviously buying houses is incredibly difficult. So I know a lot mm. of people that are actually starting to move in with with elderly relatives or, you know, they're, bu they're buying a place where it's got an annex or something like that. So I th maybe it's a changing trend, but obviously, society, you know, our view of that is still is still very different, um, which is a shame. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, 
but also the UK has really benefited from um, that, from the sort of the individual, uh, that sense of individual enterprise. You know, it's a very advanced economy and country and powerful country because individuals have gone out and, you know, tried and stri striven, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, that's just like that. Yeah, that's just, that was just my start off point. I, I always wonder if it, that was if it's too sort of serious and heavy a starting point for what's meant to be a, a light book. But it's just kind of where it began. Where um, so that, that looks like a little pod room you've got set up where are you recording i'm from? just in my in my home in hackney um oh, lovely this is where i live when i'm as i am a mother and um my daughter is extremely social social and doesn't like being not around people basically i've got two kids at school as well that that the, the window of opportunity to do stuff is so small like between dropping off and picking up it can be quite stressful when you're being a creative as well because you kind of almost kind of need like Ample's amount of time to sort of get on with a project. Do you find it difficult to with that kind of thing? I mean, you may have noticed, um, or definitely fa fans have noticed, um, that I haven't been putting out music recently. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do really struggle with finding long stretches of time, um, especially as I I live alone with my daughter. So that's um, that is quite hard to find. But when I do, I kind of go through a phase of oh my goodness what do I do now I've got I've got the house to myself um and then I go into a weird place and then I eventually emerge out of that place a few hours later and then go oh come on just go downstairs and make some music that's what you're meant to be doing um so go downstairs make some music and then um you know like I have a few half written I've got loads of half written songs um basically since Scout's been born um, none of which I have the time to finish. <laughs> um, unless I'm really, unless I really, really love it, um, and there's a there's a, a break going on with the other projects, then I I do manage to push it through and and get it done. But it's, it is really hard. Yeah, I'm constantly thinking. Right, tomorrow, I'm going to figure <laughs> out how I'm going to make it easier for myself to manage day to day. Um, but never seems to come. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I do. I do think that is something that creative people all kind of suffer with. Really, do do you have any sort of processes when you're having a day where things aren't coming and the sort of creativity? Just feel really flowing? sad for a really long time, um, <laughs> and just you know stare out the window, um, wonder how people manage to get out the, out the door and look so nice, um, and then you know make a cup of tea, make another cup of tea maybe make five cups of tea and then be like okay these five cups of tea haven't helped no. um, maybe I should just go and do the thing and it just eventually comes out of um just kind of almost disgust with myself I'm just like come on just mm. just get on with it you're just you're pathetic um and then I'll go downstairs and then it'll, then it'll be totally fine it's just that like initial phase I, it's only it's only because there's such large distances between when I have time to myself, when I don't have other things going on. Um, but when I'm in the role, when I'm on a role, you know, when it's in, when it's habit again, or mm. then I have no problem, like waking up in the morning, going like, ah, to hell with breakfast and just go for it, <laughs> you know. But that, it just never really happens anymore. Um, so there's this, always this kind of like doubt. Yeah. It's a bit crap. 
It's hard. Um, I've I've been feeling a bit like that recently, trying to write. I've been like trying to put some book proposals together and just not feeling it. And and then you end up kind of sitting in front of a blank screen and trying to force yourself to do something. And it just that's the worst thing because just nothing will come out then. And then like you say, you sort yeah. of get pissed off of yourself and and upset with yourself and think, oh, I'm useless at this. I can never do it again. And then all those other feelings in like imposter syndrome, mm. all that kind of stuff kind of kicks in when you think, oh, you know, I have done this before, but I can't do it now for some reason. Yeah. I don't, I think it's just the dist, it's the distance between um, the sitting at the studio. I, once I'm, once I'm here in front of my computer and I have my system ready to go, I don't have a problem there. Um, but it's just the getting here. So that's, yeah. it's the, just the, all the demons going, you know, whatever they're saying, just silly thoughts, silly thoughts that I just should ignore um, and just get down here. Um, but I do find there are things that help and I'm getting, I kind of feel like I'm constantly relearning the same things. Mm. Um, <laughs> but just getting out the door and walking really helps. Just get an hour of being outside, listening to a podcast. I'm really into um, the Interdependence podcast uh, with Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst. I just find it deeply inspiring. Um, I feel so lucky that there's people out there with such knowledge that have researched so much, you know, stuff that's going on right now to help people like me go, oh, I get it. I just really appreciate them. And they have a Patreon, just like you do. Um, So... (laughs) Yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I just, I'm so grateful for people like that who have the time, you know, like some medium posts as well. Just, yeah, really appreciate that. So anyway, I'll go out and I'll do some skipping. Uh, I like skipping at the moment because I sprained my ankle a year ago and it still hasn't recovered. Um, so I do a bit of skipping and then I get back and just as I kind of make my way back to the house, if I am going to make music, then I'll just go straight downstairs and I'll just, just no distractions. I'll just go, no, no, go down. Yeah, yeah. Because there's, uh, there's definitely, yeah. It's definitely when you're ready and you and you can feel it flowing. You sort of need to get it out. But my my mother-in-law told me there's a thing about if you walk. This might be an old wives' tale. If you walk <laughs> through a door, you know how like you can walk into a room sometimes and you sort of forget why you're going to be there or you've forgotten mm. something. It's about walking through a door frame. Apparently, if you go through a door frame, you it, cha- <laughs> you sure changes your going. setting. Are you or sure about this? <laughs> I don't. This I, sounds I, a bit I may voodoo. Have that, a bit. that sounds a bit <laughs> weird. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. So if you walk through a door frame, strange things mm. happen. Strange things happen. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like the setup to like really sort of bad horror movie. Well, maybe that's why uh, life's really difficult because I've got so many door frames <laughs> in this house. I mean, even I'm just currently looking at one, two, three, four, wow, five, six door frames. Um, maybe Be careful around which one houses, you choose. There's much less door frame, uh, door frame action. Um, so yeah, perhaps that's it. I just need to move into a warehouse flat, and all my problems will be solved. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and an open we'll toilet. Into warehouse, and open, yeah. No. No. No walls, toilet. No doors at all. Yeah, it'd be terrible for privacy. No great front for door. Creativity. In fact, no front door. Yeah. Just never have. Just don't have a house. Um, <laughs> just, don't, yeah, just live in a tent. Even that. Even that's, that's got a door. That's got a door. You can't avoid doors, yeah. unfortunately. Um, just, I've never heard that know. before, but that sounds a bit strange, Jim. But uh, yeah, I'm certainly. I'm up <laughs> for giving. To be honest, Thanks I'm up for giving it a go the, at this point. The mood. <laughs> <laughs> like um, going back, obviously, you, you're from Essex originally. 
Yeah, well, technically it's yeah. London. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, sorry. But, but it was Essex. I think yeah. it might have been Essex when I was born. When was the M25 invented? Yeah. Like, when did that happen? Because whenever that happened, yeah. then we moved into London. Oh. Um, because we were just about inside London, if, if you were in the M25. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, whenever that was built, yeah, then yeah, it was yeah. London. Yeah. <laughs> but was music Essex. always, like, a big part of, like, family life? Was Were your, were your parents into music? Was that, you know... Did you listen to records? Were the le- records handed down? No, 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 music wasn't really a big thing in my house. Um, I mean, my brother, he really liked, you know, he really liked his rock, his like soft rock and, you know, mullet, mullet rock, um, <laughs> which, you know, for a period I did get into yeah. things like Guns N' Roses and Billy Idol and um, things like that. Rat, an extreme Rat, yeah, like that. White Snake. Um, White Snake, yeah. Yeah, yeah here we go again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, but not really, to be honest, because my dad doesn't really listen to music. Um, he would play the piano because he, in, you know, he'd like, he's good at sight reading. So he would play mm. things like Scott Joplin and just kind of, you know, upbeat stuff. And my mum, she would, um, she would play the guitar occasionally and she would improvise stuff on the piano so the piano was never like this this thing that never got played it was just like oh that's just what people do um mm. so naturally you know my brother played the piano i played the piano my sister didn't really play the piano um but she liked horses so she went off to the local horse riding <coughs> school and spent her weekends there um yeah so i don't know i mean we, we listen to the radio mm. but my mum is musical she's like inherently musical and um if you she actually has an album uh from a long long time ago in the 60s this very kind of strange oh wow um, like folk i don't know psychedelic folk rock oh wow um called sounds interesting me, me marianne yeah um and yeah but when we grew up you know she wasn't doing that she was just looking after us a lot um that one i'm gonna check out that album <laughs> definitely yeah. at some point um Two, I was, this probably gives you both an insight into the sort of nerdy kid that I was, but I went through a stage where I was obsessed with Scott Joplin's The Maple Leaf Rag. Oh, yeah. Because um, it's an amazing tune. What, I what's to that? Recently. Could you, I know it's probably hard to sing that, but <laughs> it's, I probably dun, know that. <laughs> I probably want to do it such bad justice. I was quite impressed with that rendition. I didn't think it was that far off. Um, but yeah, no, it's just funny you mentioned because music evokes so many memories. So I'd sort of forgotten I was into that, but now I'm getting memories of me at school listening to Scott Joplin. No wonder I had no friends at school. But yeah, it's just funny. You can mention music sometimes or artists or something and it can take you back to a sudden moment Yeah, that Wasn't you there were like a different person. Somebody or... called, is it Michael Jarrett or somebody Jarrett? Somebody Jarrett. Oh, I don't know. He was like, a, he improvised piano. And there was a oh. period, just like you just mentioned that, just then listening to piano music that Michael Jarrett, isn't that his name? I think that anyway, does sound Michael familiar, Jarrett. Michael Jarrett. Yeah. He, I remember for a very small period, um, that was kind of in the car. We just didn't really have much music in the car. My mum was uh, my mum liked the Tango in the Night Fleetwood Mac album, um, and my sister had like one album, and I had one album that we were ma- we were allowed to buy in a petrol station on our way to, on a very <laughs> oh, long journey. Oh, so expensive in a petrol station! As well. <laughs> yeah, so you need a petrol station. 
and we were just like, can we have can we have some music of our own? Please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like all that was available was like um, Jason Donovan, so Juliet went for that, and I went for Bobby Brown, My Prerogative. I was like, oh, oh that's cool. I don't know what it is, but wow. so, and I really loved that album. You know, I really really loved it. But it was the only album I had, so of course I loved it. I had to love it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, at least I had to pretend to love it. Um, but I did love I did love Michael Jackson. Um, I was definitely into him. I think the bits that we heard off the radio, he always stuck out because it mm. was just amazing production and brilliant songwriting and just, you know, I just loved all his quirkiness. Um, so, yeah, I, got, I really got into bad and I had mm. been known to wander around the garden in some very tight trousers that were made out of bin liners <laughs> and string and sellotape and whatever I could to kind of look a bit bad. Like. Wow. And I even, I even went to Sunday school because I, I read, I actually read a book because I didn't like, I really hated reading when I was a kid. And um, I read this book of his called Moonwalker. And mm. in it, I realised that he was religious. So I decided in my wisdom at <laughs> nine or however old I was, that I would go to, um, I'd go to Sunday school because I'd heard there was a Sunday school in the village. And if I went to Sunday school, then I could convince God um, to let me speak to Michael and that we had this <laughs> kind of triangle of discussion somehow. So I went back early to bed and my parents were like, what's she doing? And I was praying. I was like praying for so long. Dear God, I'd really, really like to speak to Michael Jackson now that I believe in you, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I didn't hear anything back. I was really disappointed. So I was like, oh. okay, maybe I have to go twice to convince God <laughs> I believe in him. Obviously, that's a bit weird just in itself if I'm... Anyway, so I then went back and, yeah, learnt some nice stories, and but no response. Oh. So I never got to speak to Michael. Oh. I think you're the only it. child... Yeah, I think you're the only child in history that's voluntarily gone to Sunday school. <laughs> well, that was it. It was two 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 Sundays, and I was done. I was like, okay, God's not keeping up his part of the bargain here. I'm not going anymore. <laughs> I've tried. I've done my bit. Exactly. I've tried. See, I told you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He clearly Proof doesn't exist point. if he's not replying to me. <laughs> oh, amazing! Hmm. That's so funny. Um, what did you? But you, I guess you were exposed to music. Going to Sunday school though, with listening to the no, wasn't not in a good way, like maybe, that. But, um, no, there was oh. nothing. It was just like a little room in the village town, like the village hall. Yeah, um, and you know there were stories about whatever they were, you know those Old Testament stories. Yeah, um, I don't really remember much about it. I just remember no. pl- no. praying and not getting any. <laughs> <laughs> Being disappointed. Yeah. It's funny you're talking about like music in the car because I think music. I think that is probably my first exposure to listening to to music is very much mum and dad's choice. And we had, I think we had in the car three tapes. I can remember Graceland by Paul Simon, yeah. which is quite quite cool. Yeah. Like, well, take that decent. The be- the greatest hits of Cliff Richard, mm. less Going downhill. less cool, yeah. less cool. And then the greatest hits of Jennifer Rush. Okay. Well, that's a that's a yeah. So that's a bit left field. Mm. Hmm. Why was that then? Was that just because what was in the petrol station? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> like, we must well, pretend think... that we like music, right? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we, we must choose all all uh, all genres of music. Um, we I think we were living in Spain at the time, so it may possibly have been like the only sort of maybe English. British American music yeah. that was available yeah. in Spanish petrol stations, possibly. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, well, yeah, did, do you find they've had an influence in your life? Cliff Richard, Jennifer Rush and Paul Simon? <laughs> it's quite a combination. Cl- Jennifer, <laughs> Cliff Richard, no, very very quickly moved away from, from Cliff Richard. Mm. Although, weirdly, my wife, who I've then met many years later and now married to, is a big Cliff, massive Cliff Richard fan. Oh, okay. I see. So, weirdly, Maybe that, it did influence you in some yeah. subconscious Maybe. level. It's pushed me towards a Cliff Richard fan. <laughs> Although, also... This is really embarrassing, and I've never told anyone this, so I'm going to tell you guys, and obviously I'll listen to it at the same to, time. Say it, you know, to say it on a podcast, to yeah. all the people. Um, I always tell people that my first ever gig that I went to was Bell and Sebastian at the Royal Albert Hall, which was a great gig. It was actually my second ever gig. Mm. It was the first one that I voluntarily went to, because the first gig I ever went to was, I can't believe I'm saying this, was um, Cliff Richard at, I think it was a Wembley Arena. Okay. Um, and mm. I, uh, growing up, I was always like, I, I hate Cliff Richard. Mum and Dad <laughs> liked to remind me that I was dancing in the aisles for most of the oh. gig because I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Oh. So, well, how old were you? Go. Like fifteen or? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was twenty-seven. Um, no, I was yeah eight or nine. Okay. I think well, seven, eight, exactly. or nine. So yeah. I think that's you don't really have any choice, do you? No, no exactly, no. exactly. No. But, um, One of my first, the first kind of big gig that I went to I think um, I think I was about 12 because I was going out with a boy called John and um, it was Dire Straits at Nebworth wow okay um, wow. so I mean the only one that I liked was um, the Microwave Oven song yeah um, <laughs> Money for Nothing Money for Nothing sorry because <laughs> yeah. we just called it Microwave Oven yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so we really we did like that song my brother was into Dire Straits and we all went to, it must have been Nebworth um, yeah. when I was 12. And then I just remember getting, just kind of sneaking off with John and just kissing. And then <laughs> stopping when I'm here, when I heard the microwave oven song. I was like, oh, 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 let's listen to this one. And then it was back to like early teenage longing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm all, I'm going to call it the microwave oven song from now on. That's, yeah. uh, that's actually a better title than, than Money for Nothing. Um, Charles, what was your first gig? Oh, Have we discussed this before? First gig? Oh, uh, Green Day, I think. Oh, come <gasps> on. What was your actual first gig? No, seriously. <laughs> yeah, come on. It was Cliff Richard, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it was Green Day at Brixton Academy. <laughs> oh, that's so okay, cool. Okay, so how so old are you then? You must have been Ooh, a, a bit older. I was, I was a bit older. I think I was 16. Okay. Yeah. So you were allowed to go to yeah. do yeah, That's really that cool. was quite a good gig, to be fair. But it was very clear early on that um, I think I did have a trial with my district and I just wasn't cut out. For, I wasn't good enough to become a professional footballer. Nowhere near good enough. So that dream very quickly died. And then I guess because I'm a you know one of four boys, third in line, uh, to the throne it was about <laughs> you know trying to jump around and get yourself noticed about doing something else and that, I guess that's where mm. the performing came into it really you know I was yeah. always jumping around doing impressions and making people laugh and the class clown and all that sort of stuff but I guess it was that thing of just because I knew I was never going to be a, a, as good a sportsman as, as my brothers and we were we were sports mad if it wasn't football it was cricket it wasn't cricket it was golf um it was just a very fun loving boisterous and sport mad upbringing yeah um because i was gonna ask because it, it's it, there's no history it's the wrong phrase history of acting or performing in your family is there 
No, they can all act up a little bit, but <laughs> um, we've had our moments. No, literally no no uh, history of anything like that. Um, maybe I'll go on Who Do You Think You Are and find out that our great ancestors were, you know, I don't know, circus performers or something, but literally nothing like that, no. So it was, it's kind of, it was a complete left-field decision to do it anyway. Um and you know, you say you want to. I mean, and very early on, I wanted not be an actor. I was, I was very much into sort of performing arts and musical theatre and that sort of stuff. So I ended up going yeah. to a local dance school, Stage One in Essex, which then led on to Italia Conti, and then from there, I knew I just wanted to be a straight actor and, and went on to Rada. So, I mean, I guess in many respects, I was really lucky that I knew what I wanted to do very, very early on. Mm. I mean, some that's what I try and say to my kids is like just find your passion you know like find what path you want to take in life um and I feel blessed that I'm in a job even now that today that I've I get so much out of you know it's part of who I am I I mean if I couldn't act I wouldn't know what to do I couldn't I can't really do anything else (laughs) so yeah so so yeah it is interesting isn't it that idea of like knowing what you want to do because I think for some people it 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 might not come to way later in life. It might not come at all. Like it's just one of those things. But I guess if you're really that kind of age and you know, then it's kind of lucky. I guess bit of a blessing. Yeah, and I I mean, and it's all it's okay not to know, isn't it? I mean, I'm not I'm not sort of putting it out there that everyone needs yeah. to find their vocation really early. And I um, I just think I got. I mean, you know, my mum took me to see Michael Jackson when I was a kid. That's really where it all started. I mean, it was a proper uh light bulb moment i had the the video and the cd in the christmas yeah. stocking so i was really into michael jackson but then then she got tickets and we went there and i i mean my how old was i then about 12 and it was a proper light bulb moment literally <clears throat> the end of billy jean where he's in a spotlight and he does that moonwalk across the stage i was like holy shit look i mean i couldn't i'd never yeah, i'd yeah. never seen anything like it i'd never been <clears throat> in a sea of people like that as well in Wembley, you kind of, you know, it's sort of sensory overload, isn't it, the whole thing? And that was it. I, I was like locking myself in the bedroom. I had the hat, the gloves, the socks, everything. <laughs> and it became <clears throat> it became my party piece. And I um What you so know, you learned how to you did the moonwalk? Oh Jim, I can I'm not gonna do it now, but I can still throw some shape. I still do my I still do Michael Jackson on set when I'm when I'm standing around, <laughs> um, there was a hilarious moment on when we were filming Des, but um, the Dennis Nilsson thing where I, anyway, we won't go into that. But um, <laughs> that's where the whole. Po- I could say that was quite an intense show. It was an intense show. I guess that was a lot of the times he's in, probably needed have, a bit of Michael Jackson. You have to bring some levity to these serious dramas, yeah. otherwise it's um, yeah. it's horrendous. But uh, that's really where it all started, though, sort of performing like that, yeah. And it was, you know, that was my disco routine. I mean, whenever that song came on, all my mates would form a circle and um, that was it. Oh, that's incredible. I'm imagining that now. Um, The thing about the Michael Jackson stuff is, like, we've all seen, like, the moonwalk and and the leaning thing and all these, like, hundreds of times. If you go on YouTube now and watch them, they're still mind-blowing, even now. Oh. It's mad. It's yeah, very difficult for me, you know, being such a huge fan of his, 
you know, and then there was that, obviously, the mm. documentary, uh, Leaving Neverland, which I have to say, I, I, I was in bits for a whole week <clears throat> after that. I couldn't quite get, I couldn't compute it. I still can't. I still can't. Mm. I still don't want to believe that because I, I, I honestly think, you know, if those two guys were lying, they're the best actors I've ever seen. It was utterly convincing because mm. of all the, the detail in it and the content. Um, it was incredibly raw. Um, mm. So that is, so it's such a, when you have sort of hero worship like that, yeah. and, and that is then the rug is pulled from you. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult to, <clears throat> to understand and get your head around. But in terms of seeing him on stage when I was 12, I'd never seen anything. I mean, to this day, the greatest ever live performer I've ever seen in my life. And the and it wasn't so much the man, it was the dancing, the thing that really yeah. Yeah. attracted me. Do you know what I mean? I'd never seen anyone move like that. I mean, when you see him do the side moonwalk or the robotics or whatever it is, it was, it's just, you're right. When you look back at footage now, it's still mind-blowing. Yeah. This is this is where our lives are very different, Danny, because my first concert was uh, Cliff Richard. And, um, <laughs> right. he, didn't, he didn't do any moonwalking that I can remember. No Hi, robotics fans. or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But you took up tennis. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, not quite the same. But I can I can definitely imagine being that age, as you say, the sensory overload of watching that kind of thing and and, and the impact it having. Yeah, I could. It, it, I would have been the same. I think. Yeah, and I. So, yeah, I mean, it's um it's the weird thing isn't it when people are cancelled when 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 performers are cancelled or it's like it's that question isn't it can you separate the yeah. controversy from the artist can you yeah and i still listen to his music now do you know what i mean i because I, I love the music and i um it's a tricky thing isn't it i mean you think of people like um mm. you know the kevin spaces of this world like i mean an absolutely mm. top draw, phenomenal actor, and, you, and there's part of me that's sad that you're never gonna see that person perform again. Um, that's kind of hard to get your head around, that isn't it? Yeah. 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 Absolutely, I agree with you. Yeah, because you know, again, such a great body of work, mm. but then there is this juxtaposition of what you know. But anyway. So musical theatre was something you were interested in doing. So were you? Was there stuff at school that you were performing? Was there? Did the school put on musicals and stuff that you were? Well, I mean, I ended up. I was. A, I ended up at uh, Italia Conti. I, I auditioned for Conti's in my second year uh, of secondary school. Yeah, yeah, and I and I auditioned. And I got in, and I didn't go because <laughs> I um just shit myself <laughs> I was just like <laughs> I can't do this because so I couldn't imagine me jumping on the central line going up to a school in London I just I just panicked and I and we decided to not take the place um having been offered it and then something was just nagging away at me and then I think my mum encouraged me to audition again and they and it and so I eventually did go in the third year of secondary school um and it was great, you know, I, you know, from doing Michael Jackson dancing, you do jazz, ballet, tap, singing, everything, you know, it was, it was just a wonderful experience, Conces. And so, yeah, I mean, I would perform in, you know, we do countless um, musical theatre numbers, you know, uh, but I can't really remember off the top of my head now, but 
it was brilliant. I mean, it, you know, stage school's like just packed full of all of those extrovert kids from their normal schools that are, it's just full of class clowns really and everyone wanted to be centre of attention. But it was a lot of fun. I was listening to your podcast recently, Conversations, which is brilliant, um, absolutely brilliant. And I was listening to the last episode, or the most recent one you did, which was obviously in conjunction with your book coming out, which I'd love to talk to you a lot about on this podcast. And uh, something that struck me, and it's something I've been talking to quite a few authors recently about, because a lot of, of friends of mine have had books coming out, and it's about publication anxiety. And it's, it's something that um, a lot of authors that I've spoken to have talked to me about it but it's not something they talk about publicly and it really um struck me that you obviously you talked about it quite openly on on the podcast and and I it really resonated with me because I've had several books out but it doesn't get any easier every time one comes out and then Jim and I did a book together based on the podcast and it was Jim's first book so I know that he kind of probably had some of those feelings as well but yeah, I just wanted to talk to you a bit about that, if you're happy to talk about that. Um, well, <laughs> we are diving in. I mean, yeah. I so publishing the Good Ally, it, um, it's a you know, it's a book about anti-racism, which as a as a black woman can be volatile. Uh, I can be in some extraordinarily hostile places and have some really provocative and 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 violent responses so there's there's kind of that <laughs> at one yeah. end of it and also there's it's quite autobiographical there's there's so much I mean it makes sense but there's so much more of me in it than I expected <laughs> that I would write but it felt it felt honest and in integrity to share more about my own personal experiences as I'm drawing comparisons to data and stats and all of the all of the information that we can kind of put to one side or keep a distance mm. from and so it was more autobiographical than I ever intended so I just felt incredibly vulnerable because there was so much of me there but then there's all of the you know I'm a recovering perfectionist and there's imposter syndrome and there's yeah. holy shit why did I write that story and yeah. oh my god it's too late now and I, I remember my editorial team and my publishers must have thought I was losing my mind because I kept saying I've had a dream and I need to take this out and and can I change this and like Nova it's gone to typesetters now let it go and so you're with the content you're with the content for so long in in such an intimate way it's just yours and the only people that interact with it are your publishers and even then the way they interact with it is quite clinical it's quite distant they're looking at it structurally mm. and as an editor and so I hadn't I hadn't anticipated how it would feel thinking wow I'm you're just vulnerable you're you're giving yourself to the world for people to judge it love it loathe it tear it apart and you have to surrender and so the weeks running up to my book launch, I remember getting in touch with my herbalist and saying, I need I need something to just help with with my my nervous system is is so activated. Can you help? And we were talking on the phone at the time and she said, 
Nova, are you pacing around? And I said, yeah, I had so much nervous energy mm. and, 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 it, and I was just finding it really difficult to settle. So I wasn't sleeping very well either. So I found that incredibly intense. Um, and it wasn't until after my book launch, I did a book launch event myself and the first major pieces of press coming out that I started to be able to just settle and like, okay, it's out there now, surrender. There's, I learned that there's the difference between writing about something that's personal and then reading it out loud mm. in the recording <laughs> studios. I, I didn't consider this. <laughs> we, it's funny enough, yeah, totally. I, and that was another thing you, you, you sort of touched on in the podcast it was something that um, Jim and I will kind of offered for someone else to read it, like an actor. And we said, no, no, we, we want to do it ourselves. And when I was in there, I found it incredibly stressful, actually. I have to say, um, I, I'm not, a, as you might tell during this podcast, I'm not a trained broadcaster. And I found it really difficult. I found it really difficult. And I think actually going back over some very personal things like Jim said was, was hard as well. And I can imagine, you know, for you with your book, there's a lot of, you know, raw and, raw moments in there and painful moments which you're having to you're having to say out loud which is a totally different experience to writing it down totally different and and again you know it's my first experience I have nothing to compare it to and, and I didn't anticipate how hard it would be I remember in the recording studio uh, reading we were reading chapter seven which was one of my hardest chapters to write and I end it on a very personal experience of shame that I had and um I don't know how many times we had to record that section because I just, like I said to them, like I don't mind, like keep the emotion in. It's real. It's human. Don't edit that out because they want the cleanliness as well. I'm like, no, yeah. no, no. I don't mind that, but I couldn't get the words out, and I, you know, voice kept cracking, and at one point I had to leave the room, and I just had to. It was very difficult, and so yeah, there's that added layer. Sorry to sort of. Deep, it goes so deep so early. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. It's like bloody no. hell. Yeah, all right, so, we're sorry. going. No, no, I like it. It's let, honest. Let's, yeah, yeah, let's um, let's start it back a little bit. You, <laughs> you, um, you grew up in Hertfordshire. I did. Very leafy kind of Hertfordshire. And um, what 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 was growing up there like? What was it like for you? Um, I mean, for the most part, I mean, it depends. <laughs> 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 like I, I love, I love living there. I, um, you know, had a great experience. Um, like my my family, we're all very close. Um, but I guess it was, you know, it it was it was tinged with racism, and I, you know, I didn't know that I was, I didn't know, or it wasn't like I knew that I obviously the color of my skin was brown, but I didn't know I was black and racialized as mm. black and other until I was about seven or eight years old. And then from that moment, I really, really struggled with my identity and belonging and feeling like, and learning that my my value as a human being was 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 less. And so, you know, it was it was it was complicated at times. And and that that continued to when I was at, at um, senior school and started to really experience racism there. So yeah, it's it it's kind of it, it's home and it's also it's not home. It's certainly growing up because I always had this feeling that I didn't belong. I was always told, you know, go back to your own country, and I'm like, well, this is my country. Like, what 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 would you mean by that? And and as you get older and you understand more about what racism is, you're like, well, 
I don't like what am I where I always was battling with that feeling of not belonging as I was growing up into adulthood for sure the, it's the compounding we talk about discrimination now and like depending on who you are and where you are that can be compounded as a you know discrimination as a woman discrimination as a black woman and then you know sexuality and, and disability all of these things they 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 add to they add to your experience of of social suffering and i'm right in thinking early on in your sort of working career you were in you were, did performance like you yes. were an actor and stuff was that something that you um did early on in your school life well it wasn't like that was the goal Giles mm. <laughs> I was supposed to be an actress <laughs> I'm like how the hell have I ended up here <laughs> that was what was always my dream and so I, I studied at an institution called London Studio Centre who who actually probably are more known for professional dancers but they have lots of arms so I went through the musical theatre arm and I worked in theatre for a little while um but that was when I really started to understand systemic racism I guess like I would be the number of auditions I would be put forward to were really limited and it was only black roles and I'm like this doesn't make any sense like I can like I can play any role like my, why am I being put in a box because of the color of my skin and I remember I had a, a acting teacher who would say, well, Nova, darling, you're never going to play that role. You're black, darling. And and so I was, I started to learn about, I, I started to see my peers' careers advancing because they were just had more access to opportunity than I did in the boxes that I was being placed in. And so, you know, that environment is hard anyway, Um but it corrodes your confidence. And I ended up, I had an injury as well. And so combination of, of that um and injury i just i was just I'm, i was done um and i and i couldn't find a way to make a sustainable career and also play something beyond uh a black person who was either a service worker impoverished or in some kind of gang like that was that was the limitations and i felt really frustrated by that <laughs> It's always good to start at the beginning and there was a great quote by I think it's Anthony Bourdain which I'm probably going to get terribly wrong now um, but it, it's something along the lines of um, when he's describing working in a professional kitchen he's saying it's, it's, it's the last refuge for the misfits and uh, it's a place for people with who, who might have had a difficult past to find a new family and I know you know, growing up in Gloucester was difficult for you. You, your mum was a single mum, and you you cooked for her and your brother because she was out working several jobs. Did do you find cooking has always been a bit of a solid a solace for you, a a, a, a refuge? Well, it's not really cooking. I think probably the best way that, like Anthony Bourdain was trying to explain, that it's not about the um, it, it's not it's not about the food. It's not this kind of lovely. I suppose middle class world of your nan taught you how to make apple pies and you all end up cooking in a lovely space and it's kitchens are very very different they are a little bit like I mean the best way I describe them is like a pirate ship it's it is full of all sorts of people completely different mixes of from all sorts of different backgrounds and and yeah that does include some people that don't necessarily fit into society <laughs> in the best of ways you know with slightly checkered parts and backgrounds but also 
you know, it allows people to escape from those backgrounds and not necessarily go down the routes that they may well end up going down. It becomes a, a it, it does become like a band of brothers, but, uh, it, but that's the whole of the industry. Uh, but what it, and that makes it sound really kind of like cloak and daggery and removed from society and a little bit dark and dingy if you wanted it to. And there are those kind of spaces that can be like that. But actually the most of it is about, it's, it's hugely embracing. It's wonderfully eclectic. It has no, there's no preconceptions about anybody. There's no, it's, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your economic background, your class, your, um, your color, your religion, your race, your sexuality, your, it's hugely embracing. Like it is the most, um, warm, um, industry to be working in. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter your sex. It doesn't matter. Like if you just get on with the job, it, it doesn't matter where you're from. And that's what makes it such a special place because if you're a young 20 year old that has grown up in a particular area and you end up going into a kitchen and all of a sudden there's people from all sorts of different parts of the world, um, let alone, you know, different backgrounds that, it becomes such an exciting kind of hot pot of, of, of cultures and flavors and life understandings. And that's what makes it really exciting. If you're a people person, the whole industry is absolutely brilliant. So that, that reminds me, and we're, we're three minutes in, this might be a record for me, but every week I try and cram in a football reference somehow. Um, but that reminds me of, of, of playing football in a way. And that's one of the reasons I like football is because that is also sort of brings people from various backgrounds together and you're all on the same team, you're pulling in the same direction. doesn't matter where anyone's from. Um, also, really quickly, did Charles get the quote right? Because uh, before the pod, he was agonising that he was going to get it wrong. So I just want to double well, check. I- I mean, I am not an Anthony Bourdain uh, um, lyricist or <laughs> like, I, so I, I would most definitely say oh, that was a hundred percent right. In fact, Anthony Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain could not have written I it know, better exactly himself. Was it himself, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly that, exactly that. But you know, Anthony Bourdain is like he is a kind of an industry icon mm. and a figure that we all look towards i mean younger chefs they might not know now who he is or his impact that he had and they might know him from kind of like um uh satellite tv mm. um tv shows uh, of him traveling around the world and those food experiences he put himself through but actually you know when his book came out um kitchen oh, confidential man, yes. about must be about 20 That's years when ago i read it i think <clears throat> 20 years ago yeah it really does it really um hit a note for for every chef you know the understanding of how the kitchens work and they they can be pretty you've got to have a thick skin right they can be quite um uh, uh, there's people there sometimes with no great social skills that you know that get to where they want to get to by bullying and shouting and 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 being the hardest person in the room and but there's also other people that get to where they want by being the best that they can you know and earning that respect rather than shouting that respect. and they're the ones that go on for longevity so you need to have that kind of um you need to have a thick skin to be able to survive particularly in a kitchen because it is it's late nights it's adrenaline fueled it's up and down it's hot it's smoky you burn yourself it's quite you know there are the pressures of it being 
I mean, dangerous, like mm. not, you know, not firemen dangerous, not, you know, rescue services and not, you know, and at the end of the day, all we are trying to do is cook. It's not like we're saving people's lives. But there is that kind of energy, that buzz, that adrenaline mixed with flames and hot stuff and knives. And, you know, so it all kind of, you know, it does create this this environment that is pretty it's exciting to be if you're in if you like that kind of way of life i can't i can't imagine you're a shouter you've got a very warm personality so i can't imagine you're a you're an alex ferguson or a, you know gordon ramsay not anymore i mean not anymore when we were um building the business you know there's many um when you when you run when, when you're a head chef and you're hugely under pressure um and it's not your business you're you're pressured because you're trying to hit gross profit margins and you're trying to build customer expectation you're trying to cook the best food that you can ever cook and then those pressures become even more when you run your own business and it suddenly becomes and particularly when we opened the hand of flowers we had a vision and a viewpoint of where we wanted to go and what we wanted to build and you had to get people in with you so there was no i'm very much um there has never been that'll do ever from 6.30 in the morning through to 1 o'clock the next morning there's never been a point of going yeah that'll do it's always about it being 100% and it's got to be right all the time and can we make it better how do we make it better every day we want to get a bit better and you drive that all the time and you know when I opened the Hand of Flowers at 31 and you, and you really are you put yourself under a huge amount of financial pressure um, and also that kind of trying to build a business so i there have been moments where there's been i'm i'm very headstrong i'm very determined about where i've wanted to get but now i don't have to be that person <laughs> other people other people can be that person for me i've been able to build um a huge amount of team of people around us that we can keep growing um, the amazing thing that we have got is over the years we've got so many people that have come with us on that journey and still with us you know decades on so they've taken on that that um responsibility and that ethos and that that's driven all the way through the business but we do try to work we work really hard and we work under pressure and we we try to be the best people in our industry that we can be. We, we, we believe, you know, the Hand of Flowers in particular is a two Michelin star restaurant is competing in Premier League. It's a Premier League. Yeah. It's a Premier League restaurant, you know, so, and we're, you know, every year we want to be pushing for European places. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We, we want to be, we try to be. Thanks for continuing the there. football analysis. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So we're trying to be up there at the top. And that, and that, that is incredibly demanding that week in, week out, relentlessly, it's driven to be better at what we do. So we never sit on our laurels and we never, and we have to move people along if they're not sitting right in the business or we have to create and we have to drive and we have to, the same as any football club, you know, if players, you know, when people become, find that it's easy and they become not lazy, but a little bit lackluster or carefree, then it's time to go, do you know what? This isn't, we're not in the right space now. We need to, you know, you need to be able to get out of bed and push yourself every morning. And so particularly the Hand of Flowers is a very structured but pressured environment and but all restaurants are like that at any at any level you know you should be always be trying to be the best sandwich shop the best coffee shop the best burger bar the best whatever it doesn't matter what level you're at and we try and instill that throughout the company no matter where we are yeah i think now as your role as a head chef when you're in the kitchen i guess you're uh, from the outside it always feels like you're kind of conducting an orchestra a little bit is that is that a fair analogy? Are you you're kind of 
just making sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, very much. You know, the guys that are actually cooking your meat and fish and not the guys that are running the service, they're not, they are concentrating and making sure that your, you know, your starters are being put on the plate properly and done when, as the checks come in, the guys that are cooking the meat and fish or doing the chips or doing whatever, they're doing what they're told at that point. They're, they're not thinking about what's going on in the restaurant. They're thinking about getting the best, cooking it the best that is the you know the role of the head chef and the the sous chef that are running the pass that front mm. bit is it, that's in the connection with the front of house team that they're making so the best way of describing it, an orchestra is great yeah that's a good way of describing it you see you're the only one that knows what's going on and all these checks in front of you so you're telling i want that now that there, move that that's five minutes that's three minutes and whoever you're talking to is just concentrating on their little mm. bit they're not concentrating on anything else and that pass that's in front of you where the plates go from, the best way of describing that is, is a little bit, it's a little bit like Heathrow runway mm-hmm. that they're mm-hmm. all, it's all being controlled so that there's certain point because you can't have all the planes land at once. You can't have all the planes take off at once, which is like everybody wants eight o'clock on a Saturday night where well, you can't have that. You know, you've got to go, we have to be able to control it so that everybody gets an amazing time. So you're very much like an air traffic controller that is moving everything around and, and just try, you need to try and stay calm. If you see on TV, people shouting and screaming and it's all going, that, that that's not a good kitchen. That's a kitchen where it's gone wrong. Mm, if you're yeah. shouting and screaming, that means that planes are crashing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, what, what, what we need is, is you're being calm, collected. Yes, you can be under pressure and yes, you can go right, hurry up that up, move that, get that moving. But if, if there is that next level of it going, oh my God, that may, that may, yeah, someone, someone's, someone's, pressed a red button and there's loads of lights flashing <laughs> and it's all horrible <laughs> and bruce willis is about to jump out from somewhere <laughs> yeah exactly yeah terrorists yeah, and, yeah oh, that is exactly yeah, yeah we're calling we are calling bruce willis <laughs> and he's crawling through vents not again bruce <laughs> um, i guess i guess like you have to be a real people person don't you and and that's I mean, Giles and I obviously collaborate on this and we're sort of big fans of collaboration, but I guess in a way you're, it's the ultimate collaboration and you're having to get on with everyone, no matter what personality they are, because you're all working towards this sort of final goal. But I guess you really have to be someone that can tap into people's personalities and get the best out of them. I think you do, when you get to management level and you're trying to get the best out of people, it's the you know it is it is very similar. We, uh, we do, it is quite easy to compare to sporting analogies. And you use football when you when you come to running a business and owning it and being that you are that Alex Ferguson style person. You are the person that's trying to understand each individual and how to get the best out of them because you can't just blanket make you know everybody reacts in a different way to you know some people need a bit of a you know stern talking to and a you know and 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 you know harder words and some people need an arm around their shoulder yeah. and encouragement and you know people react differently and it's understanding each person um and that's how to get the best out of the team and all of those people that are in your team they don't have to be people person if you run a business a hospitality business you have to want to care for the guests having a lovely time you have to care from the moment that they make their book into the moment that they leave that they've had an amazing time and you are caring about the guest but the chef that's cooking the meat he he doesn't have to care about the guests he has to care about the produce you know if he's a really good cook that's brilliant he might not ever want to be any more 
than being a great cook. He might not want his own business. He might not, you know, he just wants to be a brilliant chef. And that's fine because you haven't got to be a people person. You've just got to be a really good cook. Yeah. So, it, you know, you, 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 but it's piecing all those bits of the jigsaw together. And because of the industry, the way that it is, it's incredibly transient. So you're, you know, people are moving all the time and moving on to different things further in their career or doing something else. Or, you know, people often find themselves in hospitality because it's a job that they're doing before they go on to their real job. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, but that's but that's fine. That's cool. Kind of like we, you mentioned briefly earlier, Cleo. You know, Cleo joined us um, when she was sixteen, when she was working at the school next door. When she was at the school next door, sorry. You know, and she was a great member of staff, but she, it was never going to be her career. But her energy and her atmosphere and how she wanted to be with people, she's amazing. And you go, so you take all of these people and you utilize their huge skill points. Cleo is great with customers. All right, brilliant. Let's make sure that she's forward facing. She says hello to people, and that let's get the most out of her for that bit. So it's a case of it's a lot of it is like jigsaw building. Shout out to Cleo and Jason and Oliver. Lovely, lovely people. Um, right, continuing the football analogy then, what, what manager? <laughs> this what is manager the most you've you ever squeezed then? in. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm, thinking maybe a, I'm thinking maybe a Pochettino, like sort of well-respected but nice. Because I don't see you as a F- Alex Ferguson or, you know, ranter and a raver. No, I, I mean, could, could rant and rave, but very much... Um, very much builds people around us that want to go on a journey, that want to be a part of it. But I think every good football manager is the same as that. If you look at people that have stood their test of time, not just any any sporting manager, that people that build great success is done over years, it's done over time. You look at Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool now, it's taken, what, three or four years to get to that point. And right now they're having a bumpy old time, but last season was amazing. And they all want to play for him and they all, you know, they all... But it's all, I think it is also, the, the Alex Ferguson thing is a good analogy because that's a point where you realise where people, he was very good at getting rid of people when it was yeah. the right time for them to move. He could encourage people to be with them, but also he was very ruthless of going, now you're not helping the team, it's time to move on. <laughs> and I think all of that is very good. But yeah, I think maybe a Pochettino would be lovely, you know, <laughs> and that, that, that's, a, that's modern day football management, I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving away from the football analogies. For, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is not a football podcast. Um, Tom, as I said earlier, you, obviously you used to cook for your mum when she was working um, several jobs and your brother. What were those kind of meals that you were cooking? What were the first kind of meals that you you sort of dabbled in in, in doing? But, I mean, they were very much like fish finger sandwiches, okay. like pot noodles, but Finder's crispy pancakes, you know, oh, like bird's eye potato pancakes, waffles. Man. I'm a... <laughs> I'm a child of the eighties. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? That's 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 exactly that's exactly what we were eating, and it was. But it was it was it wasn't then that I thought I want to be a chef. That's not what it, I was cooking then because like we were kids yeah. and my mum wasn't going to be back, so we were making tea. But it was I, th- I think it's probably the first point of understanding that with a bit of effort, the science process of cooking is something that we're still all getting to grips with. But the idea of turning something on that is relatively dangerous. I mean, for 13 or 14 year olds, you know, it's like gas ovens and whatever else. And you're trying to light it with a little taper and a whatever, you know, and then you're putting things in the oven. And then the end result is there's some form of reward. Mm. You know, it is, it's, it's tasty, probably fingers crossed it's tasty. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And and it's filling and it, and it does its job and it, and it only lasts 10 minutes. So all the work that goes into it, it's kind of like instant gratification done, brilliant. And then it's 
it's job done and you can move on to the next thing. And that, I think that was the first realization from a, from a point of view when I was at school, I was never, um, I wasn't stupid. I did all right in my GCSEs, but it never, I could have done a lot better mm. if, if I was, if it, if it clicked in, if I could be bothered with it, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much not a person that will be sit down, look at somebody that listen to what they're telling me, write it down and remember it. I mean, that's, that for me is a form of education just didn't really connect. I wanted to do things. I wanted to be a part of something, an understanding of something. And kind of sadly, I think education has moved a little bit much further on now, but you know, back in the eighties, when I, when I was at school, it was very much kind of that learning the exam process of going it wasn't about practical it wasn't about understanding you know it wasn't until you left school that you could do a, 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 some form of vocational training you know whether it was a yts scheme or whatever that but whilst you're at school it all felt that the exam system or the education system was very much based at learning then going to get a levels then going to university like no one at my school went to university i don't know a single kid that went to university from my school and there's there's 1200 people there do you know what i mean wow. i mean they might have but do you know what i mean it, it, they weren't the kids that i was hanging around <laughs> with <laughs> You seem like you're incredibly busy at the moment. Do you feel incredibly busy? Um, you know, I I don't. How do I say this and make it interesting? I'm <laughs> I'm sure it does seem that way, mm. but this season of the Goldbergs um has been a lot more um organized. So okay. I actually have days off here and there and it it's nice. Um there are times when I have been way busier. Like, you know, there are times when I've had to do two shows at once or whatever. Um, so right now, either my schedule is good or I've just adapted to it. I don't know. But uh, busy is good for me and therefore good for society. <laughs> <laughs> so you like being busy, obviously. I do. I do. What do, yeah. what do, you, what do you like? Because, I mean, obviously the performer lifestyle work is transient isn't it it comes and goes and there are yes. busy periods and not when it's less busy what do you what do you like how do you get through that you know um during the pandemic when we weren't working it uh it really made me nervous because I need to have a regimented schedule yeah you know I have to have something to look forward to I'm not great with just free time so you know I managed to fill it up with things and you know we were zooming all the time with different projects and this and that. But um, if you're asking if I have hobbies or things like that, <laughs> I suppose I do. I hike a lot. I like, I need to be out in nature looking at critters a lot. So that makes me very happy. Um, gardening makes me happy. Reading makes me happy. Um Roller skating makes me very. Oh, uh, my wife just got back into roller skating because we took oh. the kids over the summer holidays. We took the kids to a roller disco thing, uh, and she 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 just hired some boots and started doing it with them. She's absolutely obsessed with it again. <laughs> it's the most fun. Yeah, it is so much fun. I mean, talk about just like a little hour long vacation if you need to just get out of your mind for a little bit. Put on your playlist, get on some skates, and it's like that. 
that is soothing to my soul really and, well and you just go like going down the street and not in like a roller blading specific place just yeah you know what there aren't a lot of those anymore oh you know there's not there's no rinks anymore there's maybe two within a 50 mile radius of my house so i just go to the park oh nice because I'm thinking, you, you know, they used to do, it was like in the 70s or the 80s, they'd be like rollerblade battles and stuff, wouldn't they? Around like the oh, yeah. tracks and stuff. And it was like really br- brutal, I think, at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds like Fractures something else. Were... Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> yeah, The Running Man the or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are you, roll, is it rollerblades or are they old school roller boots as well? Because I think there's Proper a big distinction. roller skates. Excellent. Yeah, with yeah. the boots. Because I'm, I'm not... I'm not down with the blades. That's too kind of borderline with skateboarding and stuff. You know, it's funny. I bought a skateboard when I turned 40 and I thought, well, now great that time. my bones are brittle. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best time. <laughs> now that my body's losing calcium at a rapid rate, I'm really going to want to be on this skateboard a lot. And I loved it. You know, I would do it at night when no one could see me. And I would just, you know, skate through the streets until I saw someone in a car watching me and then I flipped off the back and landed oh, on my no. butt and never did it again. But <laughs> you know, there's something fun about being the master of this little piece of wood. Yeah. Did you see the, the skateboarding during the Olympics? I did not. I didn't, <gasps> I did not watch any of the Olympics this year. Really? Yeah. I just didn't care. <laughs> it's, I think I think you, know? you weren't alone in that. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but I I don't know. I just did not care at all about the Olympics. Well, I appreciate because I, I sit, I worry about like, okay, well, now what's next for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's next yeah, for yeah. you? Yeah. You know, you spent all this time doing that. What are you going to do now? I can't even think about it. <laughs> Like that's my burden to carry. But anyway, <laughs> or like so I did not that, watch the skateboarding. The people that train for four years and then they don't, they can't take part in the heat because they get injured or something. You're like, oh, mate, that oh, was no, four it's years. Just, just, I, yeah. Yes. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, oh, the, skate, the skateboarding. Yeah. I, anyway, I, I'm not, let's I'm, keep it up. Let's keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an Olympics fan massively either, but the skateboarding, was, it, was, it was weird seeing it. And I was like, I, I think I could do that. And oh. then, um, actually, I don't think I could. I think it's actually quite difficult. Yeah, quite difficult. Did, with the skateboarding, did you have, did you get all the, like, knee pads? And and so you, you went hardcore? I went hardcore. Nice. Um, I, I went stupid is what I did. No, <laughs> no wrist guards, no knee guards, no helmets. <laughs> if you're going to do it, yeah, go stupid. That's a dumb. good good life advice, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's some Go merchandise in that, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, though. So let's, I mean, let's go back a bit. You, so you're from, you're born in Long Beach? You, I mean, you're from California, right? Originally? Yes. Uh-huh. But Long yeah. Beach is where you've mainly been dwelling. Long Beach is where I've been since I was two years old. Wow. So, yeah. And I still live here now. I've never moved. I've never lived up in the Hollywood area. I've always commuted and that suits me just fine. Yeah. I would rather sit in LA traffic going up and coming back rather than live there. There's something to be I said like having decompression time. 
Yeah. Yes. Actually, I went into, because I live outside, just outside London. I went into London today for some work and it was the first time in ages. And I was on the train and it was really quite nice just having my hour to myself, just thinking about, I don't know, stuff and just working out my head and just, yeah, it was, we don't actually get a lot of time to ourselves these days. Yeah. So I love it. I'm I'm in my car singing my lungs out or laughing my head off at, you know, a podcast or something. And I, I enjoy it. I think it's really vital, actually, that we have that time to ourselves just to oh, like yeah. kind of dive into something that we enjoy, like you say, like listen to music. I mean, when do we, we don't, there isn't that enough hours to listen to music sometimes. Yeah. So like no, having, having that commute is really quite good. Yeah. And I've got a full setup in here with, you know, all my vinyl, a stereo, a proper record player. Amazing. Do you think I listen to it? I don't. (laughs) I don't. I set it up during lockdown thinking, okay, we're going to have dance parties every night. (laughs) Me and my husband, we don't. Vinyl. I love vinyl. vinyl. I love vinyl, but there is an extra amount of effort that goes into listening Although the the experience is better, is greater, you know, listening to analog music on analog, the fact that you have to get up and turn it over is quite a lot of effort. (laughs) And then there's, you know, just the the sense memory of every little crack in the record. You know what I mean? Takes me straight back to my my junior high school bedroom. Yeah. And listening to Duran Duran or whatever, and it just like jolts you right back into those memories. It's incredible. Yeah. But yeah, flipping the record over. Ugh. I know. <laughs> Too much work. It's like getting to the end of the cassette and then pulling it out and then all the tapes yeah. come out. You're like, oh, oh where, where's my pencil? <laughs> Better get my pencil out. Gonna have to oh, yes. Do just, that again. It's yeah. such a fragile medium, cassettes. Like tape mm-hmm. is just so delicate as a medium. Like, it, yeah, it's... I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did, really. I know. I I melted so many cassettes in my car. <laughs> Just, you know, leaving my car in the sun or whatever, and then you come <laughs> back and funky cold Medina sounds like, <laughs> you know. Were you a mixtape maker? Did you make mixtapes? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, I had a little um, pen pal boyfriend who lived in Arizona and we would send each other mixtapes and, you know, the thought and care that yeah. went into planning the mixtape. And then, you know, of course you got to tape a sign on your bedroom door saying, be quiet. I'm recording. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So many, I'm sure I have those stupid things somewhere. Will they still play? I don't know, but yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I, I found a mixtape that I'd made my wife, um, a, a couple of years ago and um yeah it was there was so much effort gone into it like the even the inlays i'd written like notes and stuff <laughs> <gasps> oh my goodness you were hardcore <laughs> yeah yeah i think you it was filled just up every inch of that inlay yeah it was it was um yeah and I was, it also it was it, obviously it was it was a time capsule of what i was listening to at the time as well which is really interesting love that was it, there, there was always a theory, wasn't there, or a science behind mixtapes, wasn't it? It was always like banger at the start. Yeah. A couple more. Notch slow. it up. You notch it up the second one oh, and then, oh, cool, up. then cool it Bring off. Bring it a little. down. Yeah. 
and then ramp it up towards the end. Is that a, is that a sort of fair science for mixtapes? I mean, I think you, I think you've just nailed it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I forgot what it was. I, I, I do remember, you know, wanting to take the listener on a on an audio journey. <laughs> but yeah, that that sounds more scientific than, <laughs> than my method. <laughs> It's the first time anyone has described me as scientific, so thank you, Wendy. That's the uh, <laughs> first for me. So, growing up in Long Beach, what what track did you start getting into performing and acting at an early age? Was that something that you always kind of wanted to do? Oh, I knew immediately. You know, from the minute I from the minute I had conscious thought that this is what I wanted to do. So I was one of those annoying children that was like gathering the kids together in the neighborhood and it's time to put on a show you're either going to join me or you're going to watch me but a show is going to happen and we had a fun backyard where there was um like an elevated porch and so it made an amazing stage and um my mom always kept us in dress-up clothes so like she didn't know she was feeding the beast. She thought we just like to put on different outfits, but we had like trunks full of dress up clothes. So it was a big deal. And, you know, I would interrupt a dinner party to lip sync a song or whatever. Quite annoying. But my mom, um, you know, she always had us in choir at church mm-hmm. or at school and um, we had piano lessons, dance lessons, all that stuff. So when it came time to, um, you know, actually go to college and declare a major and I was saying, I want to go to acting school. My parents were like, what, where did that come from? (laughs) Absolutely not. We're not paying for that. So um, it took me a while to get started in earnest, but I've always known what I want to do. Media Podcast.